Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Rituparna Padkiri, on New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Michele Acuto. He is professor in urban politics and director of the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne, where he is also associate dean, research in the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning. He is a well-known voice in international politics and urban governance, with an expertise on questions of globalization and cities. He has worked extensively on environmental action, health and cities, waste management, and the nighttime economy. He is the author of the book, How to Build a Global City, Recognizing the Symbolic Power of a Global Urban Imagination, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. I am glad to have you with us today. Welcome to this interview. Thanks, Ritu. A pleasure. Right. So uh, let me begin by asking you a very simple question. Why a book on global cities, since they are already a well-established theoretical presence in urban studies literature? What was your inspiration behind writing this book? Well, there's probably a, a simple answer to it being that I started in 2009, so it's a 13-year-old book in a way. Uh, and then there's probably a more serious answer to that. Uh, and I guess, I guess it's a great question to start with uh, insofar as the global city is far from passé and old. Uh, and the popularity of, of the term the global city and the popularity of the referencing to global cities uh, is, is still thriving and an enduring aspiration for so many cities around the world that I felt... Uh, that in spite of the ongoing dispute academically as to whether we should carry on talking about the global city or that we've said everything we should be saying, or in fact, it's dangerous to say global city, there is just so much that can be teased out of that. So really what I wanted to do fundamentally was uh, twist it a bit on its head. I still took, in a way, uh, uh, Saskia Sassen's idea of the global city for a trip to Singapore and Dubai and and Sydney, um, but I did. I, I thought I'd do so with a very specific focus on what sort of Tim Bunnell has written about uh, the idea of the urban imagination and that critics, in fact, of the global city. So Supernell, uh, Jennifer Robinson talked about as global urbanism and give it a bit more of a serious look uh, as to what, 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 what it means to take seriously the global city genre um, that's something that Donald McNeil down in Sydney um, has written about as well. Uh, 
um, and treating it a bit more than just a term. So I think to take you where I started with this, and this would have been sort of the beginning of 2009, uh, the now late um, uh, Professor Sir Peter Hall, which is sort of one of the main authors in, in what is now a hundred year old scholarship, uh, Peter fundamentally suggested uh, to me that we needed to take the global city seriously, that it's made of money breaks and aspirations and those money breaks and aspirations have not gone away in the last hundred years and its popularity is still very much having a heavy grip in the imagination of people that build cities so i guess that's where the book comes from right very interesting so i would also want to know what was your reasoning behind choosing your three field sites that is the cities of dubai singapore and sydney there's probably a whole other interview and story behind the, the ones that I didn't choose or I didn't manage to choose, uh, including Hong Kong. But I guess the, the tongue-in-cheek reason there was built into then effectively what the book talks about, which is sort of this new or newer generation of cities that have emerged from, uh, I guess, using the Jennifer Robinson from off the map, Dubai, Singapore, Sydney were not in the imagination of, sort of the, the first generation of global city scholars. And throughout uh, the last two, three decades uh, have really sort of sprung onto the imagination of people. Um, and they are really out there as common reference points when people talk about global cities. So I sort of wanted to embed myself in those contexts and I wanted three, I, I wanted an explicit comparative book um, to think about how that comparative imagination works. So not just the referential, self-referential in a way, imagination of a city thinking about itself, but thinking about cities that think about other places. So, And I guess the other reason why those three and not other three is that I wanted a mix of very different but very complex political realities um, where to challenge a bit the idea that the global city is just simply one thing and it comes top down, but rather I want a really heavy book about the politics and the governance of the global city. Um, so there, at least at the time of writing at the beginning, Dubai was sort of a two-tiered system, predominantly almost a city-state in itself, but in a federated uh, Emirates system, Singapore as the city-state, uh, and Sydney as a incredibly highly splintered reality with uh, with dozens of local councils, uh, uh, lines drawn oftentimes a bit arbitrarily, and then a state government and a federal government that doesn't believe in cities. It's a really messy place. And I think those, those three, that those complexities, those emerging or emerged at that point global cities, to then go and look at their elites. So this is fundamentally just a book about elites and global city elites. I wanted to get, as the political expression, political science expression goes, I wanted to get up close and personal with power. Right, right. So could you also talk a little bit about the methods that you have used in your book, just to give a sense to our listeners? Uh, you also write, you know, in your book that the global city should not be taken or seen as a monolithic concept. So what does it mean? Um yeah, the, in reality, I originally started writing and I originally started researching the books thinking I wouldn't 
actually write about its main method. I thought of a book heavy in, in quantitative analysis is simply not palatable for the, for the kind of audience that I was going with. And then eventually, positively, by, by, by good friends uh, that have read the book in various forms, uh, got persuaded to put all of that. So what the book does is it's, it's a pretty even mix of quantitative analysis and qualitative analysis. Um, it's a comparative study, um, as I was referencing to before, and it's comparative both internally, so how different elites and different types of people imagine, imagine a city, so within Singapore, for instance, different views of what the global city is in Singapore, but also comparative between the three cities and between different types of people in these three cities. It, as I was alluding to before, it comes out of about 170 semi-structured interviews, uh, which sounds incredibly scientific, but it really was 170 30, 40 minute conversations with different representatives, I guess, of elites that shape these cities, uh, scribbled onto little agendas uh, because of the sensibilities and sensitivities of having conversations about power in places like Singapore and Dubai, but Sydney too, in the decade between 2009 and 2018. And what I do quantitatively is that I break apart the idea of the global city, exactly as if you are alluding. I treat it as, a, as Donald McNeil says, as a genre. So I actually talk about 20 ideas that are inbuilt into the global city genre, both ideas about what the city and the global city is. So the idea that, for instance, global cities are gateway um, cities, that's Peter Hall or John Friedman's sort of, uh, imagination of the cities as a gateway, or critiques of the global city as a world of premium connections uh, like Simon Marvin and Steve Graham um, talk about in splintering urbanism. So I take those 20 concepts and I do things qualitatively with them, just in a sense as participant observation of the elites of the global city, but also quanti quantitatively correlating, for instance, which terms uh, are connected to what uh, um, or how heavy a certain discourse uh, emerges in certain elites. So it is a mix of vignettes and little stories and quantitative analysis, but it basically does one thing that Saskia Sassen always sort of always pushed me to remember that the idea of the global city only really works when you take it onto the street and you see it from the street up rather than, I guess, the bird's eye view gaze that you get from fancy uh, pamphlets and 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 promotional videos of global cities. Right, right. So the next question is related to it. I wanted to know what you think about cities having symbolic power, because you talk about it in your book. So if you could elaborate with a few examples. Yeah, happily. And originally, in fact, that was the first iteration of the title of the book was the symbolic power of the global city we eventually then went for how to how to build a global city because it was a question that i got a number of times throughout the interviews and so we're parroting a bit the airport manual uh, for business schools that gets sold gets sold in 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 in, in airport hotels uh, uh, and so forth to elites but what the book is about is about um, imagination, the imagination of the global and the global city, the power that it wields, 
And that takes me to Pierre Bourdieu's idea of symbolic power. And I really try and play with Bourdieu's um, definition and, and, and ways of unpacking, unpacking symbolism and symbolic powers. So what it, what it does fundamentally is that it treats symbolic power as the influence that difference has. Something really great that symbolic power through Bourdieu does is that difference only really matters if you can identify that difference. So it's almost the difference only matters in some degree of similarity. And this sounds very, very esoteric and theoretical, but uh, the idea of getting people to walk through a door only really matters if people can realize that that is a door and what isn't a door is a wall. So I play the same game with cities uh, and I play the same game with the ideas that sit behind the global city. So what I do is sort of, I talk about how the symbolism plays out, how the systems of symbolism uh, make the global city. So for instance, I take readers through uh, the halls where elites used to at least gather in, in conferences and cocktails and events where um, elites network and speak about what the global city is uh, gazing over it. Um, but also on the ground, for instance, an encounter uh, with the ruler of Dubai popping out of, uh, uh, of the subway system and walking across one of the squares in Dubai and sort of stopping fundamentally the activity that, that is happening on an everyday and and the imagination of the global city almost sort of embedded into a single individual and what that tells us about the politics and the power relations of the global city. Um, so the book is fairly packed with little anecdotes like that. I think one of the I like particularly in that story is how the global city, as I was saying before, is really, you can see it on the street, you can see it in the everyday life of the of, of these places. So for instance, the store of the Kopitiam, which is a, 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 a mix of Malay and Fujianese, um, a multicultural melange, uh, a name that simply means coffee shop in a way, if we have to westernize it into English. Um, and there are sort of characteristic coffee shops around uh, Singapore where people socialize, where people have as much breakfast as dinner and, and lunch. Uh, and they were born out of this this mix of Malay, Chinese, Western influences, uh, and sort of unique places of entrepreneurship, but also places that have been progressively sort of bought into the big business of the global city. So they have become uh, pins and reference points on Lonely Planet maps and guides. Uh, there are this big business like Kilini, Kopitiam that there are chains that do this and export in other places for Singapore and experience. Uh, and I guess that's, that's a good example in my mind of how you can read ideas like the global city is a gateway, the global city is a reality that places globalization. Um, the global city is based on entrepreneurship, urban entrepreneurship, but you don't always just need to read it through the idea of the leader and you can actually read it through a coffee shop at a corner. Mm, right. Uh, this is very interesting that you talk of. So I also want to know, since you mentioned that polarization and cosmopolitanism are at the heart of most global cities, how are these social forces negotiated by the actors and structures that occupy these cities? 
Yeah, I think that's sort of one of the enduring, but that's that's one of the enduring realities of the scholarship on global cities, uh, down to sort of the 1960s writing by Hall or Sassen in the 90s and and all the critiques of it in the 2000s. Uh, that fundamentally, you can't have globalization of a city without also polarization or, as Marvin and Graham would say, splintering of the city. And it's interesting because when you talk to elites, this is many of these things are not alien to the elites. So the question is, how do we wield the elites in doing something about it? There's a great, and I say that in sort of scare quotes, uh, 2012 uh, speech by the Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore that simply says uh, that that polarization is a fact of life, he says, of the global city. Being a global city means having to deal with those problems. And what I'm interested in is, is in what an enduring purchases had urban entrepreneurialism in that reality. The cosmopolitanism gets, in a sense, uh, twisted from uh, from its origins of being about uh, um, being about solidarity and commonality and connectivity, and it gets turned into an asset, uh, and it gets sold, and it's a cosmopolitan experience rather than a cosmopolitan connection. So something I really I try to do, especially in the latter parts of the book, is sort of to think through the social justice underpinning of becoming global, of staying global, of of pushing that brand of cosmopolitanism, and the need to think about the citizens, but citizens with a why, in the sense of those that inhabit the city and need to be recognized. And I sort of really try and push for the fact that the global city simply doesn't exist. In fact, the city doesn't exist if not as a connected entity to other cities and to other experiences. So that we need to recover the global in the global city as a cosmopolitan idea rather than the global in the global city as a global market idea. Uh, I also have to ask you this uh, about the relationship between cities and crisis, particularly also because we are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. So how do you see this relationship? Because in sociology, we also talk a lot about the relationship between cities and crisis and how it has influenced the growth of urban sociology itself. So, you know, how would you look at that? Yeah, I have to say that I packed and shipped the, metaphorically, by email, clearly, the last uh, final version of the manuscript uh, around about a couple of months before the first uh, informal notices of cases uh, and more of, of coronavirus. Uh, so one of the things that I did is that then obviously I was reviewing it, reviewing proofs uh, in the thick of the start of the crisis and we decided explicitly not to throw it all away uh, and decide to rewrite it. So there's an end chapter reflection on it that in fact sort of takes place uh, Precise in a very global city sense of me sort of running back from Singapore or via Singapore through Australia and things progressively shutting down. And it's sort of a reflection on the depth of the disruption of the crisis on the idea of the global city, that the pandemic crisis has hit really at the heart of the global city because the global city emerges due to its connectivity, due to its agglomeration, tight agglomeration of people and its messiness and the, the encounter of things. And in reverse, actually, it's exactly that that makes the global city sort of the one of the major vehicles through which the pandemic spread. Um, 
but this is not news. So Roger Kyle and friends uh, uh, and colleagues in Canada, for instance, had written extensively about this being exactly the case in the 2003 SARS, that if anything, the pandemic has made global cities even more central uh, today um, to challenges that break borders and boundaries, uh, whether we want it or not, climate change, migration, a pandemic. So in a sense, I, I would argue that the crisis have made considerations about global urbanization and global urbanism even more central. And I also guess that many of the d- dynamics that I talk about uh, have been even more entrenched into the mentality of and imagination of people. Fundamentally, because cities have been even more imagined throughout sort of two years of lockdowns and no flights and no connections. And the symbolic power of certain places have been entrenched even further. So I guess something that comes up in the book is that up to sort of the middle, the early 2000s, there was a clear rise of other cities from off the map. The global urban imagination was expanding in in, I guess, sort of younger, uh, different type of elites, but also that the crisis has now thrown a big spanner into that uh, and has entrenched the power of certain realities uh, that we don't have the capacity to touch directly as easily as we used to do before. And I guess also that those elites have remained entrepreneurial, but perhaps more pragmatically and less speculatively than before. But I would argue that lots of that story rings central. And again, that it was a story that was told in the early 2000s. So I wonder if we learn that story. Mm-hmm. Right. So last question, and I know it could sound a little abrupt, but do you think that there is the possibility of a global urban imagination? I think there already is a global urban imagination, whether it is in fiction, art, culture, right? We don't have to go into academia to, to understand that. There, people have, most people have a global urban imagination. And I guess I, I say that coming myself from a very tiny, small uh, country town village. I don't sort of hail from a major global city. And even in that context, I had a, some degree of a global urban imagination. People imagine New York and people have a, have a sense of a, of a London without having to even invoke the United Kingdom. So one of the things for me is actually that an urban imagination is sort of one of the most endemic traits uh, of us as a progressively urban species. But then the problem there, and I guess what I point out in the book, is that that imagination is often simplistic. So I show, for instance, how what purchase do city rankings, of which we have more than 500 today floating around, have on the global city discourse and how heavy rankings shape um, the global city discourse, which one is the best city at something. And that, that imagination gets hijacked by profit considerations, and it's often based on problematic drivers. So in a, and, and then in a sense, that imagination is deeply relational. The, the story, for instance, you can find in the book uh, is how Dubai, after a brief period of imagining itself as New York, uh, more pragmatically reimagined itself as a Singapore and that Singapore, in turn, shaped the way Dubai was evolving. But at the same time, other cities were looking at Dubai through the 
Dubai model, imagining themselves as Dubais. So in a way, the, the imagination isn't just a possibility, it's a really tangible reality of how we build cities, how we lead cities, um, and hence why invoke symbolic power, because there is a really complex system of urban imagination, urban interreferencing, again, that Tim Panel writes even more beautifully than I can about, and that we really must try and understand how that symbolic system of global urbanism works. Its elements, that it isn't just the usual suspects, that in fact academia is part of that elite, uh, and that the system is incredibly complex, and that there are symbolic entrepreneurs, as I call them in the book, that shape it, be they consultants, experts, businesses, uh, multilateral uh, organization uh, officers, uh, academics, uh, consultants, and so forth. So the symbolic entrepreneurs within that system hold a particular power on shaping that global urban imagination. So I guess the way that I push the book and I and sort of what I want people to take away from the book is that that imagination exists. The symbolic power that cities can have on it is humongous, but we can build and advocate for a better and more cosmopolitan uh, imagination. And cosmopolitan, in using the word global in the global city, like Robinson and Parnell use it as a question of solidarity and connection, connectivity between cities, that it is up to scholars to step up and do so. um, And that there are many different types of activisms to do it. So what I try to do in the book is just try to broaden the activist repertoire of the academic or the consultant or the expert um, that wants to understand symbolic power. And when you understand and play with power, you have to understand inequalities uh, and you have to understand violence and you have to understand uh, what's left behind, not just what is put in front. So really, it is a story about uh, coming to grips with the fact that the global urban imagination is there and we really need to sort of engage with it and, and advocate for a better one. Right. Thank you so much for taking us through the main points of the book and taking time out to do this interview. Uh, I think that it will be very useful for our listeners to now go back and read the book with maybe a more fresh perspective, as well as for more new audience to pick it up. So I would like to thank you for your time and giving us this, you know, slot to do this interview. Absolute pleasure.